0: to wake up. is we're, we're, The Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be called the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B.
1: I want to thank the people who support the Peter B. Collins Show. Today, we're singling out Carol Pridgen of Blue Lake, California. And also on the North Coast area, Jeffrey Stewart of Igo, California. And Greg Chavaria has reconnected. I used to talk to him in the early 90s on KSFO in San Francisco. Great to hear from you, Greg. And thank you all for your support. If you'd like to help you're in a position to do so, just log on to PeterBCollins.com. And click on that tab that says, you can help. Later in this podcast, we're going to play the new television commercial from the billionaire who made her fortune at eBay. And wants to buy the governorship of California. She's an amateur, never been elected before. In fact, she's barely even voted in the past. But she thinks she has what it takes to pull California out of its tailspin. And when you hear the claims in this commercial, you'll be as dubious as most of us here in the Golden State. to get things going, I've invited Kevin Zeese back to the program. I was quite impressed when we talked to him a couple of months back about the health care debate in Washington. And the more I've gotten to know about Kevin Zeese, the more I appreciate the variety of issues that he works on. And uh, he's got a background in uh, the drug policy wars in this country. He worked for uh, a great gentleman who's no longer with us, Peter Cameo who ran several times and earned my vote uh, uh, when he ran for governor of California and for Senate as well. Kevin, welcome back to our
0: program. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, I want to start off with the uh, the so-called health care reform, health insurance reform, uh, that has certainly stalled in Washington. And uh, since the State of the Union message, the president has been on a media offensive, and he actually has started to define what he wants in a bill. It's pretty fuzzy, pretty general, but uh, he has been able to tick off four principles that he's now challenging the Republicans to come up with ideas for in a health care summit to be held toward the end of February at the White House. And there are a number of issues in play here. First and foremost, we once again see President Obama embracing a naive notion of bipartisanship and the Republicans just keep poking him in the eye and saying, hey, <laughs> yeah, we'll come to your meeting and uh, we'll stonewall, we'll, we'll obstruct, and uh, you know, we'll demand that you scrap the entire process to date. And the president does not seem to get that these Republicans will never work with him, that he's attempting to uh, negotiate with terrorists in some respects.
0: Well, certainly, certainly obstructionists. Um, And I think the the criticism I have of the Obama approach uh, really goes right back to the beginning of it, when he held a a summit at the White House before Congress even touched the issue. And at that summit, the first speaker and the last speaker was a representative of the insurance industry, and President Obama made it very clear that he was going to preserve the private insurance industry. Once he decided that, um, the game was over. Uh, You you cannot have a successful health insurance reform in this country or health reform in this country uh, and keep the insurance industry intact. That is the major problem. I mean, 31% of the cost of health care is made up of about 20% of the overhead of the insurance companies, which includes the $11 million average salary of the CEOs, uh, along with uh, Uh, bureaucracy they create in doctors' offices and hospitals and businesses. And doctors, for example, spend uh, three and a half weeks a year themselves dealing with trying to get paid from the insurance companies. They spend 20% of their overhead trying to uh, get covered by the insurance companies. And then hospitals uh, have more billing agents than they have nurses. They have basically one billing agent per bed. Uh, and so you've created this incredible bureaucracy because you have 1,500 different health plans and insurance companies that don't like to pay. So they got to fight for every penny they get from the insurance companies. And so at 31% of the cost of health care, that's about $800 million a year, 800 billion million a year is being spent unnecessarily. And if you're going to preserve the insurance industry, which uh, is – now, there's terrorists. I mean, in California, the only state, by the way, that uh, requires them to report – when they deny care recommended by a doctor, and uh, the the most recent report found that 20% of the time, when a doctor recommends care, the insurance company says, no, we're not going to pay for it.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, There's an article today in the Philadelphia Philadelphia Daily News about a five-year-old who has to sue uh, to get uh, uh, covered by his insurance company on doctor recommended care. So this is happening all over the country. If you can preserve that kind of system, you're not going to have a health care reform that really uh, is, uh, makes the improvements we need this, The reform was simple from the beginning. President Obama should have said we're going to expand Medicare to cover all Americans. That's it. You do that, and you save money because you get rid of that unnecessary middleman that does nothing for health care. The insurance industry provides no kind of health care. They just get in the way and increase the cost you so you save money, you cover everybody, not just. Hey, $15 million or $20 million or whatever estimate the CBO makes of these current bills, everybody gets covered. Uh, and you end the denial of care because Medicare is not in the business of denying care. The death panels are in the insurance. The death insurance companies hire people whose job it is to deny care. That's not happening with Medicare. So that way you would be building on the most successful aspect of health care in the United States, Medicare, You can expand it and improve it, uh, and then people are covered as a birthright. From from birth to death, Mm -hmm. you have health insurance. That provides Americans with uh, the most freedom. They can choose uh, whatever doctor they want. They're not limited to the health care provider list approved by the insurance company. You can go to whatever hospital you want. You can go to whatever clinic you want. They're all part of the health care system. So it gives consumers choice. Secondly, it gives consumers security. Because you can quit your job, you can go back to school, you can have a baby, you can stay home, whatever you need to do in life, and you don't lose your health care. So you have security to make choices in life. You're not stuck at working at Walmart in a job you hate because they provide you insurance. Instead, you get to uh, choose a better job uh, and, and not risk losing your health care. Uh, so it gives you more security. It's good for business because business then won't have the uncontrollable cost, unpredictably uh, uncontrollable cost, of health care. Uh, with you know rapid increases in insurance and premiums and copays and out of pocket costs uh, businesses are hurting from 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 health care it's one of the most, it makes it less likely they're going to hire people and so you actually have a job creator and that's the fourth thing it does it's good for the economy yeah. a study done this year last year um, said that the, the, a net a gain of 2.2 million jobs if you go to a single-payer system. It creates 2.6 million, you lose 400,000 in the insurance industry, and you get a net of 2.2 million jobs created, hundreds of billions of dollars in new revenue into the, into the in, income stream of Americans and into the tax system of governments. So it's a win-win-win-win all the way around. Plus, it's the most popular. 60% of doctors, according to a poll, support it. The nat- largest national nurses union supports it. And uh, uh, two-thirds of Americans want to see a, a single Payer system, so you win politically. It's a win all the way around. But Obama took that off the table, and immediately started caving in to the insurance industry, and then he started caving to the Republicans, and made the system worse and worse and worse. The whole process, the 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 the, uh, the uh, reforms got weaker and weaker to the point of being meaningless. Now it's to the point where what's on the table actually makes the status quo worse, not better.
1: Well, and Kevin, uh, your points are all well taken. The president uh, has been publicly negotiating really with himself. Because the Republicans have not been a party to this process. They've only said no to everything. And so he we said, well, but would you say yes if we do this? What if I give you some tort reform? And what if we, uh, you know, make sure that your friends in the pharmaceutical industry still get maximum profits and the government can't negotiate with them for bulk buys? And, uh, you know, what if we, uh, you know, bring in the HMOs and and accept some of their Uh, legislative points. And so this whole process um, has gotten further and further watered down and it has been encouraging politically since the State of the Union to see the president more aggressive and appearing to take on the Republicans. But it's important to point out that even in his exchange at the Republican retreat, uh, he said, look, you know, I'm not a radical. I'm not an ideologue uh... The, these are not socialist reforms these are not bolshevik uh, reforms that was the term that he used well what's important to note is that even though his posture has changed and he's engaging more aggressively with republicans he's not trying to uh... really achieve what we're looking for which is to reduce costs expand coverage and really remove the profit centers that the insurance companies and the for-profit healthcare providers enjoy and will actually, you know, see an enhancement of under the proposals that, uh, particularly, the bill that came out of the Senate.
0: No question. I think President Obama, you know, he says one of his. I think it was the State of Union where he uh, made the comment that, you know, these historic reforms in, in, in American history have happened because America has come together and as one we've made these changes. That's actually not true. These historic reforms, whether it's ending slavery, whether it's uh, union and farmer rights, whether it's Social Security, Medicare, they don't come because we all come together. They come because one party wins an election and forces those reforms through. And as much as I'd like to blame the Republicans, because they are pretty useless in this discussion, they, they're presenting not any, any ideas of, of any value, they're just being obstructionists, uh, I really blame the president. The president met with the insurance industry. After that White House town hall meeting, he had, if you look at the White House logs, he had lots of meetings with the insurance industry, with the pharmaceutical industry, with Tom Daschle, who's a lobbyist for the insurance industry, and who was almost our HHS secretary. And thankfully, was was not because of some tax problems he had, but he continued to meet with the White House. And he, he he's a lobby, he, he's not officially a lobbyist, but he represents the insurance industry, uh, he, and he does it pretty well. And so. He, Throughout the process, he then he held when he had some private meetings in the insurance industry. He then he had a a public press conference with the insurance industry. You know what buddies they're going to save us all this money. Then he had a the same kind of thing with the pharmaceutical industry. What buddies are going to save us all? This? It was nonsense. But it was it, rather than putting up the consumers, you know, he could have done it when, when the study came out about how single payer could have created 2.2 million jobs. Imagine the press conference he could have had on that. He could have talked about how a, a real health care reform, Medicare for all, would help to generate the economy, create jobs for people. It would have been a fantastic, but instead he chose this corporate route, I blame Obama. I blame the Democrats and not the Republicans. Obama is a corporate Democrat. He's not only handing out money to Wall Street, but in this bill, they reach into the bank accounts of taxpayers and say, you have to buy a corporate product. You are forced to spend up to 8% of your income buying insurance, paying the premiums. And that number doubles to about 17% if you count the co-pays and the out-of-pocket costs. So health care is not made affordable with this bill, but what it, what they do is they make the insurance companies richer. hundred of billions of dollars a year yeah. uh, in new revenue for the insurance companies, and all this stuff about you know, uh, pre-existing illness, well, yeah, that's nice, except they allow you to uh, charge much more to people who don't pass the wellness program, people who have diabetes, people who are overweight, whatever health care problems. So, well, you can get insurance now uh, in the, under this bill, but you're going to pay a lot more for it, so it's basically unaffordable. So it's almost, might as well just say you can't get it, because you can't afford to get it, but you're forced to buy it, because otherwise you're punished with the with the tax, tax dollars. Well, but and, there's, and there's Kevin, I... I I I believe we should all be opposed because this is a new form of corporate welfare that is very damaging. Can you imagine this kind of corporate welfare where people are forced to buy corporate products? I think it's
1: scary. Well, and I also believe that that mandate, even though it benefits corporate interests that typically support the Republicans, is a noose that Republicans would tighten around every Democratic legislator's neck. Oh, yeah. Uh, you voted for the mandate. You're going to force people to buy That's insurance. Right. That's right. That's and right. And, you know, it's it's posturing on the part of the Republicans, but That's it's a right. very effective tool. Uh, and if if we do end up with a package that includes a mandate, Uh, I predict that that will be one of the flashpoints that will really be used to hurt Democrats politically.
0: And but it should be, because it's really an inappropriate use of federal power. It's unprecedented in our history. The Congress doesn't really have the power to do it. They should be sued. It should be litigated and found unconstitutional. I think it's a totally mis- misuse of power by the Democrats. I'm not, I, I don't, as much as I dislike the Republicans, the Democrats deserve the blame here. That's where the power is, and that's where we should put responsibility. If they're going to lose elections because of it, that's their fault, not mine. They have done a terrible job on this issue and on others. By the way, yeah, well,
1: I, I think it's very important to hear your point of view because there are too many progressives and self identified Democrats who are biting their tongue and not really offering uh, a kind of robust, honest criticism, candid remarks about the mess that's been created. And the other piece is that uh, Obama permitted this legislation to be held hostage. By the you know worst members of the Democratic Party in the Senate, That's right. Blanche That's Lincoln, right. Ben That's Nelson, Joe, Joe Lieberman. Lieberman, and That's right. and all of this has really made sure that coupled with the mandate and the lack of uh, any kind of public option, including a single payer at the state level, the Kucinich bill, the Sanders bill in the Senate, uh, that that this is a huge corporate gift, and it won't achieve. The stated goals of covering more people because it doesn't make insurance more affordable. There are no price control or cost control mechanisms in this bill that have any teeth.
0: That's right. And I would, you know, I'd say that, like for the example, the Kucinich amendment that would have allowed made it easier for states to enact single payer, that was taken out in the House bill on the direction of the White House. That's what we've been told. The White House directed that it had be removed, even though it was voted. Uh, in a bipartisan uh, vote yeah. out of the committee. And so the White House, again, made that happen. And, uh, you know, and, and what, what Obama has said in the last two uh, major talks on this, the State of the Union and the Republican caucus, he said he wants better ideas. If anyone has any better ideas, come to me. Well, immediately that night at the State of the Union, Dr. Margaret Flowers, who's a very close ally of mine, mm-hmm. member of Physicians for National Health Plan, wrote an open and, and letter.
1: And you, you two, you two got arrested together in the Bacchus hearing.
0: We did, and then and then, and then uh, we've worked very closely together ever since, and actually before that as well. But um, so she wrote an open letter. You can, if you want to see the open letter, which lays out the case beautifully for single payer Medicare for all, you can go to our website, ProsperityAgenda.us which deals with health care and banking and worker rights and a whole range of issues. But just Google open letter Obama and you'll see Margaret's letter. Uh, And so she tried to deliver that letter the next day at the White House. They refused to take it. Then President Obama the next day after that came to Baltimore, our our hometown, where both Margaret and I live. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't live together, by the way, but we live in the same city. Understood. Uh, (laughs) My my partner Linda wouldn't want me to be living with Margaret. (laughs) Um, But anyway, she she, she decided to go down with another doctor, Dr. Carol Parris, and uh, And tried to deliver the letter to someone from the White House staff, and rather than delivering the letter, she was arrested along with Dr. Paris uh, and interviewed by Secret service, and uh, has a court date uh, sometime in April now. so she was Obama's inside saying, "I want to hear better ideas, especially if doctors and nurses support it." Well, we have a better idea supported by 60% of doctors, the National Nurses Union, National Nurses United, Mm -hmm. 150,000 nurses, they support this plan. And rather than hearing it, Obama is excluding us. He's arresting doctors who are trying to tell him a better way.
1: Well, and this is my frustration, because on too many issues... This president has said uh, he wants bipartisanship, and so he ignores his base, uh, the the center and uh, center-left, who propelled him to the presidency, who secured the early victories uh, in Iowa and elsewhere. And he has ignored us on war policy. He has ignored us on the bailout of the banks. He has also ignored us most significantly on this health care process. And here is a pivot point where things are are stalled and the deep divisions between the bad bill in the house and the worst bill in the senate make it almost impossible to reconcile unless they're willing to either bust the filibuster or use reconciliation to pass the financial parts of this bill and that would be an imperfect approach but uh... it, it would be preferable to just allowing uh... the republicans to continue to block it And the silver bullet here, in my view, Kevin, is to at least go Medicare at age 55, if not uh, some sort of a path to Medicare for all over time. And we hear, of course, the dire predictions from the Republicans that, you know, well, Medicare's uh, flawed and Medicare's broke. Well, uh, there are problems with Medicare and uh what's counterintuitive for many people is the best way to fix that is to put everybody into it and exactly. then we we all have the self-interest and the deep motivation to make medicare work for doctors and patients alike
0: not only not only does it do that give us all the self-interest a common self-interest but right now medicare deals with the most difficult group of population elderly uh, who are chronically having health problems, who are the most expensive to treat. And despite that, for 40 years now, Medicare has done a fantastic job. It's the most, polling shows, it's the most popular part of health care. And well, the one area, where, you know, the United States ranks very poorly on almost all health care outcomes. The one area where we do better than anyone else is cancer treatment. Why is that? Because cancer is an elderly disease and is treated by Medicare. So our single-payer system is the one area where we do better than the rest of the world. If we were to go to Medicare for all, we would move up from 37th in the world to the top tier, to the top few, very quickly because Medicare works and it's been proven to work. And if we brought it out to cover everybody, then the financing gets better because you're not just dealing with the most expensive uh, patients who are elderly, but you're dealing with the healthy patients who don't need a lot of health care. And so that makes it all affordable. It makes it much more of a financially successful approach uh, than, than just dealing with the, the elderly. So. It's a, the, the, you're right, it's, it doesn't read with people initially, but when they think about it and realize that by covering the healthy as well as the elderly, you actually have a much more successful health care system financially.
1: Well, and all kinds of other side benefits can accrue, such as preventive care and oh, yeah. uh, early intervention. That's There's right. so many people now who uh, have high deductibles or no insurance at all, and so they avoid going to the doctor until something is very seriously wrong with them and at that point intervention is much more costly and the outcomes are are likely less uh, less optimistic and <laughs> and so on every level if we would uh, simply ignore the republican and corporate noise machines and give people the low overhead wide coverage of medicare and not jam the states with this expansion of medicaid which will uh, you know, hurt most states long-term. There's some short-term funding available to cover it uh, in, initially, and the sweetheart deals for various states that were uh, eked out. But uh, we we know that uh, the long-term funding for the expansion of Medicaid isn't there, and the states don't have the resources to take that on.
0: And Medicaid really is putting in place a caste system of health care, yes. a system for the poor, and Medicaid, it's very hard to find doctors on. Uh, most doctors will refuse Medicaid patients because it's so poorly paid. It has very limited coverage. There are people who are on Medicaid who are dying. I, I remember reading a story in the last couple of months of a, a, a woman in, in Michigan who uh, was on Medicaid and died because... Uh, dentistry was not included. She got an infection in her gum and died from it because Medicaid didn't cover that. We don't want a caste system. The idea in this country is to equalize health care, and there's been recent research that shows that Medicare does that, that prior to Medicare, in years prior to Medicare, people of of age that are below 65, health care outcomes are really dependent on income and on race and, and, and class issues. When you get to 65, suddenly that equalizes, and people's health care uh, is not dependent on their, their race and their class. Uh, research specifically on this that shows that Medicare is an equalizer. And this is really the problem with the Democrats, and it's such the opposite of the Republicans. The Republicans play their base. You can see them right now playing to the teabag movement, playing to the birther movement, these you know, crazy movements that are focusing on Obama not being born, and you see Republicans playing to it. Yeah. Democrats, on the other hand, turn their base off. They they escalate wars. They give out money to, to to Wall Street. Just this week weekend, Obama said he didn't he wasn't bothered by the CEO um, uh, bonuses. Yeah. Uh, and then he's and on health care, turn off the base by supporting the insurance industry approach. On issue after issue after issue, the Democrats turn their base off. Well, when it comes especially to mid-year elections, the base is the key. Who turns out in these lower turnout elections in in between the presidential races determines the outcome. And if you've turned your base off while the other side's turning their base on, guess what? You're going to lose. And so Obama needs to start to get much more serious about turning his base on. And he's doing, he's wrong on torture, he's wrong on war, he's wrong on health care, he's wrong on, Bailouts for the uh, the uh, Wall Street on um, issue after issue. He is going the opposite of what his base wants. The opposite of what they thought they voted for. And they they're going for change and hope. And He's I seem
1: I seem to be on, I seem to be the rhetoric. I seem to be the only one, Kevin who remembers that the Democrats gave away our Fourth Amendment rights with the phony FISA reform in the summer of 2008. And with a handful of exceptions, there's nobody in Washington who's talking about the wiretapping and diversion of emails that continues to this day without a warrant in direct violation of our constitutional Fourth Amendment rights for probable cause and a warrant. And uh, they've bottled it up in the courts using the state secret privilege in a way that's even more abusive than Bush. And nobody is talking about it.
0: And it's true on many issues in the war on terror. I mean, just uh, two and a half, three weeks ago, a U.N. committee reported that uh, the use of drones, the way we're using them, killing civilians, is a war crime. Yeah. Is there any discussion of that? Has, has that slowed down the use of drones? No, in fact Obama's buying more drones in his record setting the military budget. In his record setting war budget. He wants more drones, even though the UN is saying it's a war crime the way we're using them. So, you know, it's it's despair. and then he's of course covering up the whole torture issue. Yeah. Not not holding anyone responsible. For what was a widespread torture program that affected thousands of people, not just the, the few bad guys who you hear about. There are reports, human rights uh, reports, that show that thousands were tortured during the Bush years uh, by American uh, uh, military and CIA. Well, and, and, and Kevin. No, no responsibility.
1: Even with the uh, incredible low bar that Eric Holder set saying that we're only going to prosecute people who went beyond the John Yoo memos, who went beyond the Don Rumsfeld authorized techniques. Well, Scott Horton of Harper's Magazine has recently detailed the deaths of three prisoners at Guantanamo who most likely were tortured to death. That's that's the clear implication from the available evidence and the eyewitness testimony. And the Obama Justice Department appears to be uh, trying to close the books on that and refusing to to investigate these homicides. Now, those clearly went beyond the, the strictures as relaxed as they were that were, uh, you know, enunciated by the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, David Addington uh, apparatus. And yet uh, we hear no evil, we see no evil, and we can't afford to uh, divert attention into these investigations. For what? Because we've got to maintain the corporate giveaway in health care.
0: Well we have to maintain um, you know uh, what we have in this country, which is uh, a corporatist government that believes in American Empire. It's corporate militarists that are in charge. On the Republican side, it's, they call them neocons, uh, the neoconservative movement that's taken over the traditional uh, uh, conservative movement. The traditional conservative movement is very anti-war. Uh, Very anti-intervention. They would not support torture. It'd be much a a much better country if the populist, traditional conservatives had power in the Republican Party rather than the neocons. On the Democratic side. You, they have various names from this called New Democrats, which is what Obama calls himself, by the way, a New Democrat, uh, the DLC, Democratic Leadership Conference, or just corporatists. And that's who's in charge of both parties, the corporatist, militarists. If you look at Obama's cabinet, he surrounded himself with people like Joe Biden, who, as chairman of foreign relations, only let people testify who supported attacking Iraq. Whether you're a retired general, retired foreign service, whether you're a weapons inspector, if you support... Support invasion. You're allowed to testify. If you're not. You were not allowed. He's a guy who, when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee earlier in the in the in the '80s, who pushed mandatory sentencing, the crack powder sentencing disparity. That's right. The, the Drug czar's office, and he's our vice president. That's who you pick from corporate Delaware, the most corporate state in the nation, uh, representing the real corporate interests of, of the country that in that state that makes it so easy for them to corporate and and avoid taxes. Uh, and he's the vice president. Then you look at Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff. The, Received the most money of any member of Congress from Wall Street when he was a member of Congress. He was out of office between the Clinton and congressional offices for a year and a half. He made 19 million dollars uh, as a Wall Street investor uh, in, in a Midwest firm. So you know that you know that didn't happen without some corruption. You know you don't make 19 million dollars uh, just by by good luck and good guesses in the stock market. Uh, and so that's the guy he picks the chief of staff, who's who's known as the bag man for the Israeli lobby. I mean. So any around Summers and Geithner, just the list goes on, and it's not just that top tier. You can look below that tier, and you see you know all sorts of corporate interests making and an key decision-making parts of the government. This is one of the most corporate um, uh, administrations that we've had. Uh, it it, it is, is a classic, you know, corporate state. Type administration. And, the, and unfortunately, that's what it is. It's about corporatism and militarism. And that's what Obama stands for. That's what the neocons stand for. That's who's in control of both parties, the corporatists. And that's what we got to fight. It's populists on the left and populists on the right who are beginning to wake up but don't have the power yet to uh, take over uh, the control of those parties. And if they can, they need to create third parties and independent movements. And, you know, so we're, we're trying to do this through our Prosperity Agenda project on the economic side, prosperityagenda.us. We're trying to do it on the uh, military side through VotersForPeace.us, which deals with trying to prevent wars of aggression and is trying to hold torturers accountable. We've joined with a coalition of 150 groups uh, through Velvet Revolution, uh, uh, disbar com, to try to get the uh, torture lawyers who facilitated torture. We filed 15 complaints against torture lawyers, uh, including uh, three of whom were held over and worked in the Obama administration as well to try to get them disbarred, and now the Department of justices, sweeping that under a rug, uh, calling their decision to facilitate torture a bad judgment, as opposed to facilitating a war crime. Uh, They're hiding that. So on issue after issue, we need political movements to build. And I'm confident that if political movements do build, that we can make change. And that's how it's always been. We make a big mistake when we think that the you know, uh, knight in shining armor is going to save the country. It's not the knight in shining armor. It's the people getting organized and being persistent. It was not LBJ who gave us civil rights. It was the civil rights movement. It was not Woodrow Wilson who gave women the right to vote. It was the women's uh, voting rights movement. It was not uh, Richard Nixon who ended the Vietnam War. It was the Vietnam anti-Vietnam war protests, and the Vietnamese people who organized and stopped the war. It takes people to make things happen. Yes, finally the leader will accept it, but it's not the leaders. uh, the, The two parties are status quo parties funded by status quo business interests, who are going to protect the status quo. That is their first responsibility, unless there's enough of an organized effort by people getting together in an educated and organized and persistent way and making demands that the government then has to accept. And that's what we have to do, focus on organizing movements.
1: Kevin Zeese with us here on the Peter B. Collins Show today. I want to turn now to the episode regarding James O'Keefe and uh, his buddies, who posed as telephone repairmen and uh, uh, visited the office of Senator Mary Landro. Um, and uh, Brad Friedman, who uh, I know you're aware of at Bradblog.com, has done an excellent job of unmasking, first of all, O'Keefe's uh, posing uh, and uh, manipulation of the videos that he shot that uh, caused uh, the demagoguery that uh, brought this uh, incredible action against Acorn. Um, and he's also exposed uh, the way the right wing has tried to create a, a hero uh, out of James O'Keefe and uh, had to eat some shit because of uh, his his getting caught in this most recent escapade. But let's talk for a moment about Acorn, because it, now that we know the techniques uh, that, that O'Keefe used, he's failed to ever released the full videotapes that he claims he shot. Uh, What he used was heavily edited. Uh, As Brad uh, clearly has pointed out, uh, O'Keefe claims to have posed as a pimp, and he's shown wearing some sunglasses and a weird fur vest uh, in some photos that were edited into the video. But when he actually went into Acorn offices to entrap and manipulate uh, the unsuspecting workers there, uh, he wore a suit and and didn't uh, use the pimp regalia at all. And that's just one example of the way he was able to trick the corporate media in this country into using his videos without careful examination. And then that led to this stampede where there was a vote in Congress to strip all funding from ACORN and virtually all Democrats, just a handful of independent thinkers, uh, refrained but most of them piled on, and uh this is uh clearly a bill of attainder, as many uh principal Democrats have pointed out it 's not a fair uh way of investigating or sanctioning acorn and it's now very clear how much of a setup the o'Keefe initial effort against acorn was
0: yeah now it's very interesting i mean i, I you know thank you, I really do appreciate brad's investigative journalism on this because. You know I was fooled by uh, some of the tapes as well when they had him dressed up in a pimp costume uh with the woman who was obviously dressed up in a prostitute costume uh you know walking in the street and they had video of that it looked so outlandish, but then you don't know that when they're sitting in the acorn office, they look much straighter they you know they're he looks like a college student she looks like a normal woman you know not not someone who's a street hustler and um so it, there obviously was a lot of deception involved and i'm glad to see acorn is pursuing litigation because i think when the full tapes come out that will be quite a, a, an outstanding piece of information to get the full picture of how the the public and the congress uh, was deceived and acorn you know it's it's one another example of uh, how untrustworthy the democrats are as allies i mean acorn is a very democrat Organ leaning organization. Obviously, it's not officially so, but it's very much so a Democrat leaning organization. They endorse Democrats in the elections. They work for registration in, in communities that are Democrat leaning communities. Obviously, you can't pick a Democrat from a Republican in every community, but if you go to black black neighborhoods, you get 90% of the voters supporting uh, Democrats. You know, mm-hmm. so you can pick the communities you want and make sure you get Democrat, and that's what Acorn did. If I had a crisis of acorn, it would be that they were too close to the Democratic Party, and I hope that now that they've seen the Democrats turn their back on them immediately and provide no, show no loyalty to them for years, literally decades of working mm-hmm. uh, to help elect Democrats, I hope the ACORN takes a more independent approach and starts to hold Democrats accountable. Because Democrats are not doing great stuff for working Americans. They're not doing great stuff uh, for poor Americans. They're not doing great stuff to create jobs or move a green economy as green-collar jobs for people who are in underprivileged areas or providing them training and education to get those kind of jobs. It's not happening. And so I hope ACORN will hold the Democrats accountable in the future as well and not assume that they should just walk locked up with them. So now this kid O'Keefe you know, gets caught in Louisiana with a bunch of other right-wing uh, so-called independent reporters um, giving reporters a bad name, yeah. going, going into Landry's office and playing around the phones. Um, and thankfully they spent a little bit of time in jail. It'll be interesting what the prosecution is of doing uh, in that. So uh, it has put a lot of egg over the conservative space. Uh, who were so close to O'Keefe, but um, I think it's starting to bring the truth out about what's going on with this kind of phony journalism that's just uh, really mocking real journalism because it's creating uh, misinformation rather than real, real information.
1: Well, and, and Kevin, this is part and parcel of a, a bigger failure by the media in particular. Because as we saw, the the Tea Party group—only uh, six hundred of them—gathered in Nashville yeah. and uh, paid exorbitant rates to hear uh, Sarah Palin ramble on and to hear uh, Tom Tancredo uh, reinforce his racist credentials. Uh, but but what is missing here is the way this was created. Uh, by corporate money, by corporate provocateurs, uh, by you know you know people uh, who were allied with the McCain campaign just a year ago and i 'm thinking of Nancy Fotenauer in particular, and Americans for prosperity and This is a group that has taken corporate money from big oil from tobacco, and other predatory corporate interests, and they have you know it 's not that well disguised. Uh, the manner in which they have injected it into the political process, with the yahoos who disrupted the town hall meetings uh, during the August recess. And that now has become part of the wallpaper, the background, this meme that these are real Americans who have real legitimate anger. And most of it is phony. Most of it is completely concocted. Yet uh, mainstream news organizations report without question that this is some sort of a legitimate movement, and uh, we see it being used by nutcases like J.D. Hayworth, who has found a whole lot of room to the right of John McCain, yeah. <laughs> and and all of this is propelled by a fawning corporate media that takes its talking points from Fox and that is deeply uh, uh, influenced and controlled by corporate money.
0: No question about it. I mean, that's that's what's you know there is. Definitely a real populist anger in America uh, people are very concerned about the Wall Street giveaways they're concerned about the corporate influence over over Congress and the White House and so there is a legitimate populist anger what the what's happened with the Tea Party thing has been these corporations have been very slick in funneling money uh, into a movement and manipulating people uh, and you know, sarah Palin's speech you know it just was just incredible you you could hear. You know, her trying to put this uh, populism uh, in her rhetoric, you know, talking about crony capitalism and such, uh, which is a real problem in this country. There is a real serious problem with crony capitalism and corporate welfare and the corporate welfare state that we live in that provides money to big business at the expense of small business and the expense of taxpayers. That's all real. But – Rather than what, what the what the what this false populism is is not focusing on, is that it's not government that's a problem. It's the, it's the corporate government. It's the and that's the real dividing line. I think it's not to me. It's no longer Democrats versus Republicans. You know, I learned when I, I was Ralph Nader's spokesperson in 2004 when he ran for president against John Kerry, and uh, that election uh, working in that campaign taught me it's not really Democrats versus Republicans. We saw. Corporate Democrats and corporate Republicans aligning together in numerous states to try to keep Nader off the ballot. Yeah. The corporate politicians from both parties didn't want to have any discussion about the power of corporations and their control over government in the debates, and so it was more important than to keep Nader off the ballot. Uh, and so you had uh, uh, you know Democrats working with Republicans. It's really the question. It's not Republicans or Democrats. It's corporatists versus populists. And there are people on both the left and right who are populists, and there are people on Republicans and Democrats who are both corporatists. And that's the dividing line. We can't be fooled with that. And we have to look at every piece of legislation. We have to ask the question, does this strengthen or weaken corporate power? And if it strengthens corporate power, it's not a good compromise. That's why this health care bill is not a good compromise because it will strengthen corporate power. It will add to the money they can use to pollute Congress, to buy politicians, to pollute the airwaves with misleading advertisements. So that's the real question we always have to ask ourselves. Corporatism versus populism, does this compromise weaken corporate power or strengthen it? If it strengthens it, it's not an acceptable compromise for the, for the American people.
1: And Kevin, you were out front trying to expose the uh, inordinate power of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Even before the mid-January Supreme Court decision, that is a boon not only to the chamber, but to every uh, corporation that operates in the United States, even if they're not based here. Because they have domestic affiliates, probably registered in Bermuda or the Caymans, uh, but that are nominally uh, American entities that can be used to fund independent expenditures. Now, to be clear, the court did not permit corporations to directly contribute to the campaigns of individual candidates, uh, except through political action committees, which uh, preexisted. But what they have permitted is even worse. It's more uh, deadly, in my view, because you will have corporate interests able to enter into a candidate campaign through independent expenditures, that even the candidate can't say, whoa, Nellie, that one went too far. (laughs) And most of it's going to be spent destroying uh, what's left of progressive and liberal candidates for office in this country. And it will also be used to brush back and blackmail office holders uh, by simply setting a few examples. And my big fear is that this fall, we're going to see Senator Boxer here in California singled out for special attention by clean coal by big oil by any industry affected by her attempt stalled at the at the moment to pass a cap and trade bill in the in the senate and i'm not the biggest fan of cap and trade but it is apparently the only market mechanism that we can bring to play to put a true cost on carbon emissions and attempt uh, long-term to reduce uh, those emissions because it will be in the financial interests of companies to do so. Uh, My question is a long one here, but I think you know what I'm talking about. This unlimited power of corporations to uh, put messages out into candidate campaigns is going to be really deadly this year.
0: Well, that's why we started the Stop the Chamber .dot com effort because with Velvet Revolution, in uh, 100, 150 organizations, I'm on the board of Velvet Revolution. I'm also their lawyer, and we started the Stop the Chamber campaign because they are essentially the lead corporate bully. They spend more than any other corporate entity, and they are a, a group that's used to hide corporate money. Yep. You know, so while the pharmaceuticals are saying and the insurance companies are saying they're supporting Obama's plan, they're funneling money to the Chamber of Commerce to run anti health care reform messages. And the the real, uh, I think a a good example of what this new court decision can lead to is what we've seen the Chamber of Commerce doing at the state level already. Uh, They have spent literally millions of dollars uh, in campaigns involving uh, Supreme Court judges around the country. Uh, What they do is they create a phony uh, entity, like Ohioans for a a strong Ohio or something, or Citizens for a Strong Ohio and they, you know, get all the money from their corporate friends. Don't tell the public where that money money's coming from. Then the last few weeks of the campaign, they dump a million dollars into an a uh, campaign against the one progressive judge on the bench, the one who has a civil rights record, the one who has a consumer protection record, an antitrust record. You know, that one judge, they're going to target, take some, something out of context, blast it with a million dollars in advertising, uh, and, and defeat that judge. And they've successfully done that in dozens of states where they've changed uh, the, the makeup of courts from Republican to Dem- or Democrat to Republican uh, with these kinds of campaigns. And, of course, these judges' races don't usually have a lot of money in them. And so when this judge is running for office, gets hit with this attack in the last few weeks of the campaign, he or she doesn't have time to raise money to respond. Yeah. There's no way to get the advertisers on her. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an attack with no defense. And then, you know, in the Ohio Ohio case, in that group of Citizens for a Strong Ohio, that was a real group. Uh, And it took five years of litigation to force the Chamber of Commerce, to force them to admit where their money came from. And it wasn't Citizens for Ohio, it was pharmaceutical companies, it was uh, uh, insurance companies, it was bankers, it was automobile companies, it was all the industries. Uh, It wasn't Citizens for, it was industry for. Uh, And they they, they do this in state. They they only gave the information up, by the way, when a judge put a twenty-five thousand dollar per day fine on them. If they didn't put the information out, they got fined twenty-five dollars. They finally then told who they really were. But it's five years after the damage is done, and that's what we're going to see around the country with now this the Supreme Court ruling opening up these floodgates of of corporate money. Corporations will create front groups that will. Go out and advertise against Barbara Boxer or anyone else they don't like. They'll do it in judge races, state legislative races. They'll they'll swamp these uh, races around the country and transform the outcome. And that's why we did stopthechamber.com to start to raise that question. We're going to continue to push it because the Chamber of Commerce is the lead bully when it comes to corporate power. And their CEO in particular is one of needs to be removed from office. He's done a great deal of damage. And if you go to our website, prosperityagenda.org, excuse me, prosperityagenda.us, and, you know, search Chamber of Commerce, you can see a whole series of articles about the abuse of the Chamber of Commerce on issue after issue after issue. And thankfully, some really responsible corporations, including uh, electric utility companies, uh, are, are, including, uh, you know, Apple, are, are dropping out of the Chamber of Commerce because of their um, irresponsible behavior when it comes to issues like climate change.
1: Yeah, it is uh, breathtaking because uh, my utility here in Northern California, Pacific Gas and Electric, Has actually dropped out of the Chamber of Commerce over these issues and in the meantime they're spending huge on a ballot measure that'll be on the low turnout June primary to try to block what's called community choice aggregation and uh, it's legal under the law here for communities to form their own uh, mini utility and we're doing it in my county in Marin County just north of San Francisco and the package has just been approved and is going to be implemented And yet PG&E has this ballot measure that would require a supermajority, a two-thirds vote, uh, for people to opt into uh, an alternative energy distribution plan like the one that we're we're embracing here. And it's such naked bullying and power play. um, I I just couldn't resist uh, mentioning that because, on the one hand, I applaud PG&E for pulling out of the Chamber of Commerce but uh it 's only by a matter of degree, I guess uh, well, in that, terms that's of
0: listen about that shows you, that shows you how bad the chamber is you know, when, yeah when, when a company like that is saying they 're going too far, uh, you know they 're really going too far uh, and that that 's the truth of the Chamber of Commerce. They really are an abusive uh, uh, misuser of their power, and uh, you know this is uh, this is one issue by the way i 'm on the same side as President Obama is he 's also been stopping uh, refusing to. Uh, work with the Chamber of Commerce and going around them, going to directly to uh, uh, industry CEOs rather than through the Chamber, working with the Business Roundtable rather than the Chamber. Not that those other actors are all great, but that just shows how bad the Chamber is.
1: Yeah. Now, Kevin, uh, I appreciate your time today, and as we wrap up here, I, I wanted to ask you to comment on something because I, I wrote a blog post the other day. And I have a feeling that most Americans have been lulled into a kind of complacency, particularly those who were the early supporters of Barack Obama. And what I noticed is in the clips that were played uh, regarding the uh, the passing of uh, Congressman Jack Murtha from Pennsylvania, a complicated man who was a decorated Vietnam veteran, uh, a, a real hawk and big supporter of the Pentagon, number one recipient of campaign cash related to the failed Star Wars system. Uh, Rarely met a weapon system that uh, he couldn't get behind and get jobs in his own district. He was embroiled in an ethics scandal related to uh, his former staffers who formed a lobbying group called PMA. And he would flip earmarks to them and they would flip a campaign cash to him. So I, I don't oversimplify the record of Jack Murtha. But I did appreciate when he surfaced in 2005, given those credentials, and became a sharp critic of the continuation of Bush's invasion of Iraq. And uh, I will always be grateful uh, that he stood up and spoke out. But as I saw those old clips played and also saw some local coverage of some military funerals for those who've been recently killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was a jarring reminder that no troops have really come home from Iraq since Barack Obama took office. Now, the troop count there is down by about ten or 15,000, but those are basically the tail end of the mythical surge of troops that that Bush uh, implemented in 2006. And I I can't understand why so many people on the American left remain silent uh, as uh, President Obama can't humanly Uh, exercise the or or complete the promise that he made, as limited as it was, to get combat troops out in this calendar year. I'm not aware of a single uh, contingent of American troops that has recently been returned from Iraq.
0: That's right. And, you know, uh, you look at what President Obama has done uh, as Commander-in-Chief. I've already mentioned the drone attacks, which are probably a war crime that's killed many, many civilians. Uh, But... If that's attacking a country, Pakistan, where we have we're not even at war with. Certainly, Congress has not issued any kind of war declaration against Pakistan. Uh, he's escalated Afghanistan. Uh, he has uh, not done any serious withdrawal at all from Iraq. Mercenaries uh, in both countries are on the upswing. We now have more mercenaries, uh, you know, paid private uh, security in Afghanistan than we than we have troops. Even though there's been a surge. Of, of more troops, he's now attacking Yemen. He's proposed, last year he proposed a record-setting uh, military budget, beating beating George Bush. Last year he he proposed record-setting spending on the wars, war supplementals, in one year, beating George Bush. This year, his current budget he's putting forward breaks the record that he set last year for you know the, the military budget. So President Obama has been about as hawkish as you can get. You know, so when I hear, you know, uh, Palin and and other right-wingers saying he's, you know, weak on security, I I don't know what they're looking at. This guy is about as aggressive on security as you can imagine. He probably has accomplished more than McCain could have gotten away with. And so, you know, my group, Voters for U.S. has been opposed, has has been reporting uh, President Obama's positions throughout the campaign and since, um, you know, he's been elected. And we've been critical... Of his views, and we're trying to push as hard as we can to to challenge him on that stuff. I'm glad to see people like Cindy Sheehan are also consistent on this, challenging Obama just like they, she challenged Bush. Mm-hmm. But too much of the peace movement is quiet. Uh, there's this this is a, a, a hawk president who is doing incredible damage to uh, you know our our national security by killing civilians and creating hatred for the United States around the world. Uh, and as much as his, his flowery rhetoric and eloquence and elegance. Uh, you know, reaching out to, in speeches in Egypt and such is, are appreciated, even those are starting to wear thin when you look at what's really happening on the ground. Uh, this is a hawk president, and the, 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 the U.S. anti-war movement had better get its act together and start to stand up to him, because he's getting away with uh, literally murder. Uh, Literally, he's getting away with war crimes without being challenged on the home front by his own base. And this is the year to do it. The Democrats are afraid. They see losing elections in 2010. Many Democrats see losing their seats in 2010. Uh, President Obama sees a weakened legislative majority in 2010. This is the time for Democrats to say to President Obama, change course now or you're not getting my vote. Our vote means something. The only wasted vote is a vote against what you believe in. And if you don't believe in war, if you don't believe in corporatism, you've got to really think. you got to really question voting for a Democrat.
1: Well, Kevin, I really appreciate your articulation on so many important issues. Uh, you must have a very interesting war room there where you operate with all the different issues that uh, you you focus on. And I'm going to put up your website addresses: stopthechamber.org, votersforpeace.us and prosperityagenda.us on the show notes at peterbcollins.com.
0: Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that, and thanks for having me on.
1: Kevin, we'll talk again. All righty. Take care. Okay. Kevin Zeese, here on the Peter B. Collins Show. Our program is sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic stand by coming soon an announcement about the organic wine club that you can join we'll get to the details soon here on the PBC show and there's a special introductory offer available on my homepage at peterbcollins.com Here in California, we've got some ugly political races shaping up here in 2010. And on the heels of Michael Bloomberg's incredible spending to buy three terms as mayor of New York City, we see a billionaire stepping up who doesn't even have the level of business or political experience that Mike Bloomberg can brag about. Her name is Meg Whitman. And she's the former CEO of eBay. Most people know about the online auction site. And it's been a successful business, but it's not a perfect story. And Meg Whitman touts her success as a CEO as the reason why people should elect her governor of California. And in a moment here, I'm going to play for you the audio from the first television spot that has debuted from the Whitman campaign. She spent about uh, 3 or $4 million on radio advertising uh, as kind of a warm-up, and that has been on the air for the last four to six months in uh, different markets around the state. She started off with uh, ads on conservative talk radio and has expanded to more mainstream uh, stations, including uh, music-formatted stations. And her radio commercials are, you know, pretty broad and fuzzy, not terribly specific. But a recent one that I heard uh, basically declared California as a welfare state. And uh, she is running the way Ronald Reagan did many, many years ago uh, against so-called welfare queens. And what's really obscene is that Meg Whitman is spending tens of millions of dollars... She's already committed uh, somewhere around $40 million of her own money to this campaign. And she's raised about $10 million from other fat cats. And she hasn't debated once, even her Republican opponents. She's being treated much like Sarah Palin was by the McCain campaign, which is she only speaks in very safe conservative venues. She doesn't meet with the press. I haven't seen Facebook postings from Meg Whitman the way Sarah Palin does. But they're running a campaign that uh, in campaign circles we call Hide the Candidate. And it was bizarre because the first time I saw this commercial that you're about to hear was last weekend on Saturday Night Live. And I presume that this was a technical error on the part of my local NBC television affiliate. But right in the middle of a comedy sketch, this Meg Whitman commercial just played. And then when it was over, they went back to the comedy sketch. Now, maybe this is some super-duper premium media buy where Meg Whitman is willing to spend so much money... That they'll actually just drop it in in the middle of a a, a program. (laughs) That's pretty unusual. Uh, Typically it happens in a commercial break. But whether that was a, a paid intrusion or a technical error, it did get my attention. And Meg Whitman has zero political experience. She's never even served on a little town council or a planning commission somewhere. She is starting at the very top. And aside from that, she has trouble proving that she has voted as a citizen since she moved to California. And she originally came here about uh, 30 years ago, and then she left. And I believe she has lived here steadily for the last uh, 18 or 20 years. And still, they can't produce her voting record as a citizen. So she parachutes in here, promising to save California because she has business experience. And uh, I'll play this and and stop it uh, along the way to make some comments But I'd like you to hear this first salvo of political TV advertising from the Whitman campaign. She says she's willing to spend up to $150 million of her fortune to saturate the California airwaves. And so I imagine that uh, this is just the first example of what we can expect. So the video is loading right now. And uh, here comes Meg Whitman in your I will say
2: the number one thing I think that faces California right now is actually a crisis of confidence. People are scared to death that California cannot be fixed.
1: So it's a crisis of confidence. People are scared to death. Uh, so she's playing the fear card. She appeared on camera for the first few seconds of that, and then they cut to kind of generic shots of uh, California cities at night. Uh, glam shots, I would say. They don't really portray the hardships that average Americans uh, and and working Californians are dealing with right now. It's just uh, kind of Hollywood-type shots, aerial shots of California cities.
2: The most important thing that the next governor of California has to do is actually deliver
1: the goods. The profession- so it's interesting. I, I want you to listen carefully to the critique she's making of politicians and unnamed California governors because uh, for the last six and a half years, we've been stuck with this Austrian-born action movie star named Schwarzenegger, who, like Meg Whitman, came in promising to fix California and claiming that uh, the reason we should trust him is that he had absolutely zero political experience. Now, I give Schwarzenegger some credit for learning how politics and uh, how government works here in California. He's been a total failure in trying to execute any plan to deal with the problems but he is a smart guy who taught himself a lot on the job the question is can we afford another person who starts at the top and engages in on-the-job training so let me back this up just a little bit and here once again is meg whitman deliver
2: the goods. the professional politicians have been fighting in sacramento for years and the state is in the worst shape that i've seen in the many years that i have lived in california so
1: she's blaming professional politicians not the amateur over the hill movie star who took california from a problematic state and turned it into a state in a deep deep crisis no she doesn't mention that because it wouldn't play well if people compared schwarzenegger to meg whitman
2: we can turn california around i think actually i can make a huge difference I have run large organizations. I know how to create jobs.
1: So there was a picture of eBay headquarters, a glam shot at night. And here is a uh, a cover of a magazine, but it doesn't say what the magazine is. It simply shows a picture of Meg uh, with a headline, The Best CEOs for Investors, Meg Whitman of eBay. Again, we don't know the source of this. Uh, they could have done it in Photoshop. I know how to
2: focus. I know how to balance a budget.
1: And here comes another uh, magazine cover, eBay's Secret, how Meg Whitman runs the world's hottest company. And once again, we don't know what magazine it is. It kind of looks like Fortune, but uh, it doesn't actually say.
2: And I think a business perspective is a bit of what California
1: needs right now. So a business perspective is a bit of what California needs right now. Really, Meg, what exactly does that mean? And how do your business skills translate to dealing with, say, the Grover Norquist Republican minority in the legislature in Sacramento? These are the people who have pledged not to raise taxes in any way, shape, or form. And those who have violated that pledge have been subject to nearly immediate recall campaigns funded by Grover Norquist and the far right. And so she offers no insight as to how she would break the logjam in Sacramento or how she would work with the majority Democrats who have fumbled this uh, economic policy process as well. Uh, It's just amazing that she makes these assertions and offers absolutely no credible proof of the claims that she makes. Uh, Back to the Whitman commercial.
2: The things that I think we need to focus on are first creating and keeping jobs in California.
1: All right. Now, that's not bad. Creating and keeping jobs. But uh, is the private sector going to do that? eBay has not stepped up to expand its presence in California, and like many Silicon Valley companies, they have a headquarters here, but most of the manufacturing and the uh, the customer service jobs are located in other states where the wages and uh, other costs are much lower. So, fine, she wants to create and save jobs. I'll agree with that point. Uh, from Meg Whitman,
2: second is cutting government spending.
1: So number two, she wants to cut government spending. Now, government spending in California peaked at 104 billion dollars in the annual budget two years ago. The current budget is 85 billion, and it is expected that that will be reduced by at least 15 billion in the coming year. And for those who don't live in California, just a couple of quick sketches uh forty eight percent of the annual budget in the state is already committed by ballot measures by initiative to k through twelve education so you can you can cheat and you can break the law to underfund education, but uh, there are no real savings available there. Next up is the uh University of California and CSU system that uh, has been dialed back It's about seven billion dollars a year. Uh, Then you have the state prison system, which is eating up about $10 billion a year, and the cowards in both parties refuse to confront the court order from federal courts to reduce the prison population here in California. And so they're continuing to keep people locked up in large numbers at great expense. No one is also willing to confront the prison guards union that uh, is, is seriously overpaid, and has way too much political power. Uh, So, point number one, she wants to create and save jobs, good enough. Point number two, she wants to cut government spending, but she offers not a single detail of how she would accomplish that without uh, cutting, uh, you know, really critical services that average citizens uh, expect from a state government. And her number three, after the first two, is a real doozy. Third
2: is fixing our education system.
1: So she's going to fix the education system after she cuts funding. And the funding has already been cut in the last two years in a very draconian way. So these are completely empty promises or assertions that she is making. And now we get to the part of the commercial, the last 10 seconds, where they pile on uh republican platitudes and slogans that mean absolutely nothing
2: we need to have california be what it once was
1: be what it it once was and that's a picture of a ferris wheel (laughs) i don't know where that comes from uh we we want to be what we once were and we can do it she cheerleads
2: let's say what we mean mean what we say and let's get it done
1: say what we mean and mean what we say and let's get it done What the hell does that mean? This from a candidate who isn't willing to debate her own Republican opponents. There is one minor debate scheduled for later in the month, but she refused a a debate opportunity at the state Republican convention. Instead, choosing an Orange County group that uh, only allows people to join who pay $10,000 or more. And... She's now willing to debate, since Tom Campbell left the governor's race to join the race for Barber Boxer's Senate seat, and her only opponent is polling in single digits. He's the state insurance commissioner, and he doesn't appear to have any traction whatsoever. So now she is willing to debate, at least once. But to date, she has avoided any kind of close examination by reporters or by her opponents of her history, her campaign promises, and the alleged skills that she would bring if she's able to buy the governorship here in California. So it's going to be a long political year here in the Golden State. And in a future podcast, we'll talk about the ugly attack piece that Carly Fiorina the failed CEO of Hewlett-Packard, who is uh, running for Barbara Boxer's Senate seat against the aforementioned Tom Campbell. And her piece is one of the uh, uh, ugliest and dumbest political ads that uh, I have seen in my lifetime. So that's the report from San Francisco today. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Let me know your comments. Drop me an email, peter at peterbcollins.com.
0: Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.